Before we look into his word, how about if we bow our heads and hearts in prayer together? Our great God, thank you for Orangewood. Thank you for this church, this family, this mission outpost, this group of your disciples that you have gathered together that has had such an amazing ministry over the years. And as we come into your presence today, our great God, we thank you and worship you as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship you as the God who is infinite, immortal, invisible, God only wise. We worship you today as the God who is holy, holy, holy. And the God who loves us and who has shed his grace abroad in our heart through the Spirit of God. And we have sung about that this morning, and we worship you. We're, we've been unleashed with who we are in you, and we thank you. We praise you. And so this morning, Father, we pray as we come after a busy week, and you know each one of us. You, you know what we went through, uh, what, we, what, our, what dreams were fulfilled, what dreams were shattered. You know our hearts. You know our minds. You know our emotional state right now. You know those who fear tomorrow and those who are hopeful for what would happen. And so, Father, right now, even in the midst of the unknown, we come into your presence, for you have made yourself known to us. And we ask that, Lord, you would open up your word and make it clear to us that as we leave this place, the gospel of grace would sink deeper into our hearts. And so we do pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins. And use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth as we've come here today to focus upon our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to Philippians chapter 1 or alternatively your phones or iPads or just check out what uh, comes up in back of me. Uh, Philippians 1, 21 through 30 is our text as we continue a series that we've entitled Grace on Fire, as we've uh, studied through Paul's letter to the church in northern Greece called Philippi. It's great, great letter. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose For I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your joy and progress in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. This is God's holy word. You know, as we think about the thrust of this text from Philippians, those those verses we just read, we might say that Paul is asking the question out loud as he processes his imprisonment with the Philippian Christians. And that's what he's doing. 
You remember, he's still in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, uh, maybe in the barracks of the Praetorian guards, we don't know, maybe, maybe in his own rented quarters still. But, but as he processes his imprisonment with the Philippians, a church that really loved him and had sent him out as a missionary, uh, he, he, he sort of is dealing with the question, what if I get out of here? What if I get out of prison? What do I do with my life? And of course, that question, what do I do with my life, is one of the big issues that all of us, when we're younger, um, in my case, a lot younger, ought to be asking uh, right out of high school, right out of, uh, into college or in those formative years of starting our work. We ought to be asking these life-changing questions like, who am I really? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What do I do with my life? These are the big issues of life. And of course, uh, our culture today is still offering uh, answers to this, and, and, and many in our culture haven't given a really good answer for it. Many people don't think these big questions through, so they just start pursuing success as they have sort of subliminally come to think about what a successful life would look like. They go after it. And that great theologian philosopher Woody Allen said something along the lines to really help us. He said, he said you know, 90% of success is just showing up. He's got a point. But he doesn't answer the question. Who am I? How did I get here? Where am I going? What do I do with my life? These are the really big issues of life. And you know, the interesting thing is in Genesis, God answers that question. In, in the beginning of the Bible, God answers that question. He lays that whole thing out there for us. And for creatures, who am I? Who are you? We are the deeply beloved, special creatures of the Most High God. How did I get here? By God's artistic hands. Uh, where am I going? What do I do with my life? You know, that was answered early on in the Bible. I, as I sit down and ask the questions with uh, my Old Testament professors, and I said, well, what if, what if... Adam didn't sin. And they say, Pete, we can't go down that road very far. I go, I know. If we go down that road, we end up in heresy. I said, well, indulge me. Let's, let's enter into the heresy of the hypothetical a little bit. What, what if Adam didn't sin? What would we do? What would life look like? And the best they come up with is something like this. Well, these special creatures, Adam and Eve and others, have, that have been given incredible talents, just like all of you, Incredible gifts, just like you. They would, have, they would have understood what it meant to enjoy a relationship with the God of the universe. And they would have, through the talents that God gave them, extend his glory all over the known world and all over the universe. There are a bunch of other planets out there, and I'm pretty convinced there aren't aliens out there. Though, if you know there are, let me know. But, but what, would it, what would we have done? We would have extended the glory of God all over the universe. See, I think every Christian needs to have a definition of life. Life, from God's definition, is a gift to be enjoyed, an adventure to be embraced. A gift to be enjoyed, an adventure to be embraced. Can you imagine any other greater adventure than working with the Father of the universe, the God of the universe, to extend his glory all over the universe? That would have been great. Did early man follow God's plan? We all know he, they didn't. And basically the reality is that Adam and Eve said, we're going to go our own way. You know the gospel. You know the reality of what the Bible says, that, 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 that humanism was born in the Garden of Eden. And humanism is, God, we got this. 
Humanism is we're going to think about life, plan life, do life without God. We don't need you. We're going to do our own thing. It was born in the Garden of Eden, and it continues to this day. And so man has lost his ways, forgotten who he is and what to do with his life. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so early on in this rejection, uh, man, man pursued his own way. And then religiousness happened. Uh, and, but humanism really has been the mainstay of humanity. You said, well, what about, the, what about the, the false gods of Mount Olympus and the Greek gods? How many of you have read any of that stuff? The gods, the mythology. Yeah, you've read some of that stuff. It's weird. Can we talk? The gods are weird and the stories are weird. You say, well, that's from your position of modernity. True, okay, I'll grant you that. But the gods were weird and they weren't very nice. They were powerful, but they were immoral and they were sometimes stupid. I, it's crazy. So people were religious, but you know, you need to understand that philosophy moved beyond the Greek gods really quick and really early. They moved beyond that into Greek philosophy. And what's Greek philosophy? Some of you studied that a bunch too. Greek philosophy is simply humanism trying to figure out life and answer life's biggest questions by human intellection alone. That's what it is. So the earliest Greek philosophers, after they got past the idiotic gods that most of the people sort of did, sort of didn't worship, the Greek philosophers were saying, what is the ultimate nature of reality? How many of you woke up this morning and asked that question? If you did, we need to talk. But the Greek philosophers were saying, what is behind the universe? Earth, wind, fire. Sounds like the Power Rangers. I know, but the reality is that's what it was. That's what they thought. Was it the earth? Is that the ultimate nature of reality? How about the wind, fire, water? That's what the Greek philosophers said because they had put God on a shelf. And whenever you put God on a shelf, things go wrong. Back at Adam and Eve, it went wrong. It went bad. Humanism is, is, is us saying, God, we don't need you. And then, and what happened to humanity? Well, by Genesis 6, there was a flood. Why? To cleanse the earth. Because humanism always goes bad. Did that solve the problem? No. By Genesis 11, you got the Tower of Babel. They're doing it again. We don't need you, God. And here we are today. But in this text, as we think about it, as Paul has thought about uh, how many people tried to make life work, uh, Platonism, uh, Epicureanism, Stoicism, it's all humanism. Paul in the text that we're dealing with today circles back to the reality of what life is all about. He, Paul brings us back to the beginning of Genesis. And we know the great, the, the great flow of redemption history, creation, fall, promise, fulfillment, uh, and then consummation in Jesus Christ's second coming. What Paul does in this text is he takes us back to Genesis and says, this is what life is about. This is what I do with my life. It's great. Grace. You see, the grace of the gospel sets a fire uh, burning in, in our hearts that helps us not only prepare for the life to come, but the life here. And so grace on fire, grace in our life, Paul says, brings fruitful labor. Look at these. Let's walk through these verses together. We put the whole outline up for you uh, under this first point. But Paul is saying, what do I do with my life? Well, fruitful labor. 
fruitful labor. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is an amazing statement, isn't it? Uh, we don't normally think that way. For me to live, life is a, Christ is the organizing, energizing principle of our life. And to die is gain because we get him. We have him here. We get him there. Uh, to live uh, uh, is die. There's no, if we have Christ and we get home, there is no more residual sin. No more agony. You guys are forgiven. I'm forgiven. But we got some agony here too. We know in Christ our guilt is removed. But don't you still sometimes feel guilty? We know in Christ our shame is removed, but don't you sometimes feel shamed? Guilt is you've done bad. Shame is you are bad. Sometimes I think that shame is a more powerful force in my own life than even guilt. But in heaven, there's not going to be any guilt and there's not going to be any shame. No more. No more, no more voices, no more tapes of anybody saying, yeah, but you could have done better. Isn't that great? In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that means that, that this life may be good, but heaven and the, and the life to come is always better. Always. Inevitably. Better. Billy Graham lay in state this uh, week, as you know. And I love Franklin Graham, the interview with Franklin Graham, uh, when uh, they, they said, well, how do you feel about the death of your father? And he said, oh, oh don't, don't think that Billy Graham's dead. He's, he's more alive now than he ever was. See, that's the gospel. That's how Christians think Christianly about life and death. There's life here and there's life to come. There, there's existence here and existence to come. Christianity is not life here and non-existence to come. Real life is to come. And that's why Paul shows his struggle. He says, I do not know which to choose. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And why does he say this? Why does he so long for heaven? Because 2 Corinthians 12 says he's been there. He's been there. He saw it. He had a vision. We don't know the exact nature of it. When we get home, we can ask him, Paul, what was that 2 Corinthians 12 thing going? What really happened there? Did you go there? Did you have a vision like the prophet? What happened? He said, I was there and I want to go back. He, but does he really have the choice? No. Let me answer that textually. He has a desire, but no real decision to make to go to heaven. He has a preference for heaven, but no prerogative to make that happen. He's just showing uh, that he is pulled. He's hard-pressed. It's like tug-of-war. Two big gorillas, one on either arm, pulling him. I want to go to heaven, but I want to stay here. I want to go to heaven, but I want to stay here. I have a desire. The word desire in the original text here is a powerful word. It's not, yeah, it's okay. Uh, where are you going to lunch after church? I know a lot of you are going to lunch. Kiki's. They have a Kiki's nearby? They do on my side of town. You're going to Kiki's, Applebee's, you're going, where are you going? Yeah, you might say, I don't care. I don't have a big, some of you are making that decision up right. Put your phones down and do that later, all right? <laughs> I don't have a big desire. That is not this word. When Paul says, I have a desire 
to depart and be with Christ, it's a word that means strong, strong pull. I want to go there. I want to be there. And it's the idea of departing. The idea of departing is the idea of you're on a camping trip and it's raining. And you look at each other as you're sitting under your tarps and you're saying, why are we here? And the mosquitoes are coming and you say, and you break up camp, said, let's go. You break up camp and you get out of there. That's what Paul's saying. I want to depart, break up camp, get out of here and go to heaven because heaven is very much better. And I'm belaboring this point because Paul belabors it. He gives a triple comparative here. He strings together these words, more excellent to a greater extent, much, which comes up very much better. A triple superlative. If you have any doubt about heaven, he dispels it. He wants to go there. He wants to be. But then he comes back and he circles back to Genesis. Yeah, what do I do with my life? To remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake, he says. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your joy and progress of the faith. See, what grace did for Paul is it changed his perspective. He knew that the gospel filled all of his needs, met all of his needs. He was forgiven. He was adopted as a son. God is not angry at him. He was beloved. His identity was restored. He wasn't working for his identity. He had his identity. So what's left? Go home or be fruitful. He said, I'm going to stay. I know until God takes me, I'm going to stay. You see, grace in Christ not only prepares us for heaven, it prepares us for life until heaven. Grace gave Paul a whole new focus, new priorities, a new emphasis This sense, not that he had to do things for God to be accepted by God, but because he was accepted by God, he could be unleashed to serve God. That's what grace does. It sets you free. Uh, Here's another truth. The preference, those who prefer living in heaven have the most impact living on earth. That's what grace does. Because you got nothing to lose. And you let grace unleash you. In a powerful way. As someone said, a person wrapped up in themselves is a pretty small package. But a person energized by grace lives larger and larger and larger. Now, fruitful labor, not frenetic labor, but fruitful labor, uh, there's some risk involved in that, isn't there? Uh, Every time as a as we as a daughter church of Orangewood started a new project or a new ministry, I'd come up to my elders, we'd talk, and I'd say, guys, I think, we, I think the Lord's leading us to do this. And they'd say, wait a minute. Somebody inevitably would say, uh, wait a minute. If we do that, there's risk involved. And as we go ahead, we could be liable. We could be sued. And I said, of course. But of course, there's risk in everything we do, isn't there? And so every step of the development of a ministry is a risk of faith, a step of faith. And risk is always involved. I remember, um, and I really don't know what Orangewood's next step are, but I know that it's going to take risk, right? Because if we're going to advance the gospel, that's the vision of what you're about, to advance Christ's kingdom, make disciples who advance Christ's kingdom. There's always going to be risk involved 
in that. I, I remember when you guys first started this building. I know, I know. Some of you are saying, you're that old. Some of you were there, and I know you. But I remember when this was underway, we were getting started out on the northeast side of town. This was underway, and this hole began to open up underneath. Remember that? Yeah, some of you remember. It's called a sinkhole. This is Florida, for crying out loud. And, and it began to open up. And what did you do? What did the leaders decide to do? Fill up the hole. Although it, things could happen right now. Um, and it could, we could, it would be a glorious departure if it happened right now. <laughs> you build in Florida, there's always a risk, right? There's a risk of whatever you do for the kingdom. Uh, Joe Creech said, I, I, I could invite all of you men who work downtown to our ministry, Forge. Somebody said to me, Pete, how are you enjoying retirement? Retirement? I'm not that old. I'm older than I look. I said, you're going to get the fever and die. I'm not retired. Forge is a ministry of discipling guys. We're starting up our third site uh, Wednesday downtown. So if you work downtown, the elders all voted that you have to come to our ministry downtown Thank you. Thank you. You can almost get to heaven free because of that. But <laughs> listen, I, I don't know if anybody's going to show up on Wednesday. We've, we've started two sites. We're going to start a third site. I don't know. And I'm a little worried about that. And then sometimes the father whispers into my ear, son, over the years, haven't I showed you that I come through? Do you think I'm going to let you down now? How often has he done stuff for you over the years? He wants that memory to motivate us in the present as we lean into the future. And so there is risk. But notice the perspective that Paul has. Because he says, convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your joy and progress of the faith. Do you notice this perspective that Paul has on life? Grace gives him a big perspective on life, that it wasn't so much about just him, but it was about because God had fulfilled all of his needs in Christ, he was free to have a bigger picture for other people. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. That's perspective. And that's what grace does. It burns so that we have a bigger picture for ourselves, not just what's happening with me now, but what will happen through us all in the future. Life is a gift to be enjoyed and an adventure to be embraced. And Paul says, uh, with integrity, uh, he says, I want you to know I'm coming to see you. But when I come to see you, I, I, I want you to know that I want your proud confidence in me to abound in who? Christ. All ministry, and many of you are very involved in many different ministries uh, in Orangewood and the community. This, is, this church is doing wonderful things. But we, we're reminded by Paul's focus on integrity here that integrity is, is because Christ has met all of our needs and changed our identity, then, then, then we can point people to him. 
And so the confidence is not so that people would have confidence in us, but the confidence they have in us could then be parlayed into confidence in Christ, pointing confidently to, to him. And he had a methodology as well. I'm going to remain and continue with you all. There's a play on words here that's absolutely amazing in the original text. It's the word meno, abide or remain, and parameno. He says, I'm going to, rem- I'm going to stay here and I'm going to stay by you. Here's my methodology. Here's ministry. This is what ministry is, isn't it? Ministry is simply remaining with people in the gospel and staying by their side, pointing them to Christ. And then the outcomes that he wants to see. He says, I want to see that you guys have progress and joy in the faith. It's a misnomer when people say, you guys that talk about the grace of God, you don't care about character. You ought to hammer us a little bit more. You ought to tell us that the Christianity is about becoming moral people. And you know, I was trained to hammer people to teach them to become more moral people. In seminary, they have a class entitled Hammer 101. (laughs) Moralism 101. Hammer those suckers. Tell them to be better. No, no. See, what grace does is it energizes growth. I've never known Christians that didn't want to grow. Didn't want to become more like Jesus. Grace is that favor of God that energizes growth. It enables us to have authenticity and look at ourselves and say, I'm a mess, I got to grow. Lord, work on that. I don't have to play games. None of us has to play games. The truth is that grace takes us, uh, makes us long for heaven while it unleashes us to have progress and joy in our life here. Let me read to you something John Thurman, one of your elders, uh, wrote and is so good. Uh, I butchered a quote of John two weeks ago. So I said, John, you got to give it to me right. And this is what he said. He spoke this at our men's group, our forge, when he spoke for us. He said, most men, most people, most men are, are more driven by what they are running from than what they're actually drawn to. Oftentimes, they're being driven by the negative voice of never being good enough or not being worthy or never going to make something out of yourself. This is tantamount to being chased by a lie you can't outrun. So we spend a lifetime trying to be the very thing we were told we couldn't be. This sets up an incessant need to perform, to be approved, to fill the holes with something that tells us we're lovable, that we matter, that we're good enough. The negative voice drives many to worldly success only to find out when they arrive that the place of success is hollow and empty. In the end, only truth trumps the lies when we realize that as image bearers of the king, we are good enough. We have immeasurable value. We manner. That is the gospel. You should have John preaching and not me. Isn't that freedom? Isn't that joy? Isn't that how grace energizes us regardless of what's going to happen? And, and this is what we need to allow to sink in to us. Some of you are looking at your outline and you're saying, you got one more point. No, that's next week. Kid you, fooled you. There's too much here. We got to do communion. And this sets us up for communion in a powerful way. What's the takeaway for us? Well, I think one of the 
if you don't know Christ, if somehow you got here and you're seeking, you're looking, you're thinking, what does it mean to really be a Christian? It really means coming to the end of your humanistic endeavor. To be a Christian means that you've seen that you've tried to make life work and answer the big questions of your own life. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What do I do with my life? And you finally come to the point where you say, I don't have the answers. This is a great church to be in to answer those questions because this is not a church of people who have it all together. But, but if you don't know Christ yet, this is a place to come and say, I think... I think I need help with the basic issues of life. And we offer Christ to you. We invite you to Christ. Prayer team afterwards, talk to me, talk to one of the pastors or elders. That's most important. What about those of us who've been following Christ for a long time? The big takeaway, I think, for us is is that as we allow the gospel of grace to sink in, you've heard this before, but to personalize it. The worship team's going to sing a song that's going to focus on you being a daughter or a son. And what we have to do is allow grace to continue to be personalized in our heart. God is our father through Christ, and he's not an abusive father. He's way better than our earthly fathers. To help us understand that his grace is for us and it's real. And to allow him to forgive you if you still feel guilt about yourself or shame. The father never shames you because he poured that all out on Jesus. And to allow the grace to bring progress and joy. What's your biggest mountain right now in your life? Where have maybe you slowed down in your spiritual growth? Where are you angry, fearful? Where, where have you sort of come to the end? Where, and you say, I, there haven't been progress in my life. Bring that to him. Say, show me where you want more progress. Let grace bring that next step of growth. Joy. The gospel brings joy. Because Jesus did it all. And because you're his daughters and his sons. And we're going to celebrate that in the Lord's Supper right now. You take it to heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray as we prepare to give, as we prepare to receive you in the Lord's Supper. That Holy Spirit, you would bring your power to bear on our minds and take the truth that we know to to be true, the truth of your gospel, and move it to our hearts. And so energize our hearts that we feel again the joy of being your children. And then we pray that it would work out as we walk with you this week. And so we pray, Lord, that your truth would become so clear to us as we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.